Welcome back. You're at the Faculty Factory Podcast, and I'm Kim Skorupski at Hopkins, looking at two of my colleagues and friends from over a decade now. Let me first introduce you to Dr. Harriet W. Hoff, MD, is a professor in the Department of Anesthesiology and the Executive Director of Faculty Development and Faculty Affairs in the Department. She is also an adjunct professor of biomedical engineering and the co-director of the Utah Coaching and Advancement Network, or UCAN for short, at the University of Utah. And also, drumroll, she is a president-elect of the Academic Senate at Utah. Hi, Harriet. Welcome back. Hi, Kim. I'm so happy to be back. Yeah, and back because Dr. Hoff is at episode number 172. You want to check her out earlier. And now, our co-presenter, our other guest for today is Dr. Susan M. Pollard, MDMS. Sue is the Senior Associate Dean of Faculty Affairs and Faculty Development, the Ruth E. Murdaugh Professor of Family Medicine, all at the School of Medicine at UVA Health, University of Virginia Health System. Uh, also, Sue is another frequent flyer. Her episode number 21, almost six years ago now, way back when. So welcome, Sue. Thank you, Kim. And congratulations on more than six years history of this. What great work. Oh, it is well. an amazing podcast. Yeah, this is so fun. It's all because of colleagues like you. Now, the big story is we must acknowledge Sue's recent award. Why? Because we must amplify each other. We have to support each other and listen to what happened with Sue. Congratulations to Susan M. Pollard, MD, MS, FAAFP, Senior Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs at UVA School of Medicine and the Ruth E. Murdoch Professor of Family Medicine for receiving the 2023 Carol J. Bland Phronesis Award from the AAMC, that's the Association of American Medical Colleges, Group on Faculty Affairs, GFA. Sue, Harriet, and I met through the GFA a long, long time ago. The Phronesis Award honors members of faculty affairs community who exemplify the spirit of phronesis through dedicated and selfless promotion of faculty vitality. Phronesis is defined as acting for the welfare of others without thought for the self, seeking and enabling heroically the development and success of others. Current and past recipients of this award are educators and academicians who have lived examples of exemplary leadership, mentorship, and innovation in faculty affairs and development. So if I have one of those, those applause machines, it'd be, ah, we're so proud of our friend and colleague, Sue Pollard. So much deserved, and we we're all thrilled to see you up on that stage um, this past summer. So congratulations again, Sue Pollard. Thank you. It was deeply meaningful to you. And so for everyone who was there to celebrate, thank you. My son was there and he was so impressed. Yeah. And your your speech was just lovely. I mean, it was just so real, so authentic. It was like right to the point and just kind. And it was it was really a feel good experience for all of us. So proud. Now, why why are we all here together, the three of us? Because we have a, a longstanding a um, passion and dedication to our faculty, supporting our faculty, helping them advance so that our institutions can recruit and retain the best faculty. And we've been doing this for a long time, all of us, and, and we love it. And so I've seen both of you in action. We've worked together, we've collaborated, and we had a conversation like we need to tell more stories and help faculty 
understand what needs to happen to promote our careers. How does this happen? And how do we advance through in academic medicine? And maybe I'll ask Sue to kick it off. Like, where does this thread begin? You know, what brought you here on this journey? And then we'll ask Carrie to do the same and then talk about uh, your wonderful tools you have for us today. Absolutely. So thanks so much for the great intro and, and for setting up this program. This is really fun to think back around how it did evolve over time. My work really focusing on this began probably in the mid 2000s. Um, I, prior to that, I'd largely worked with medical students and residents. And in 2006, found myself at the dean's office as, as, um, as the assistant dean for faculty development. And what I realized is I love that work because faculty work is continuity. It's the lifespan of the faculty with students and residents. The minute they walk in the door, you're you're preparing them to leave you. But with faculty, you're investing in the rest of their life. And I just love that. I'm a family doctor. That's kind of what I do. Um, but really, the, then the focus work, the work at a national level, began with my engagement with the early career uh, the EWIMS program, the WMC EWIMS program, and also in my subspecialty group in the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. And as I look back on notes from those sessions, um, it was a lot about balance and about work-life balance and how women make manage it. And remember the old themes of having it all. And I'm grateful to say that that's not where Harriet and I are focusing now. Certainly those things come into play. They're what we're talking about. But when we're talking about women in medicine, and that's where we're deeply invested at the present time, um, we're talking about presenting your whole authentic self in the best light. And we talk about tools and processes to make that happen. So um, in ELAM and the still working with the AAMC um, and in the other programs, uh, that's really my focus. And what I'd love to do is thinking about how we as women claim our place in the world through documents, through language, through how we talk about ourselves and about each other. How about you, Harriet? Uh, so, so when I think about like, how did I get into this? How do you present yourself? How do you claim credit for your accomplishments? I think there, there were sort of two uh, pieces that really inspired me to make these practical things centerpiece um, and it led the, to the work that Sue and I do together. The first is I really viewed myself as a mentor, even starting in the early 90s when I first joined the faculty. That was mostly with med students and residents, but it began to be more and more with faculty as well. Um, and one of the things in mentoring, some of it was research mentoring, some of it was career mentoring, was um, my experience of being at conferences and listening to horrible, poorly organized non-informative talks over and over again. And so I had a uh, commitment to no one coming out of my lab, no one that I am mentoring is ever going to give a bad talk. And so we started having, um, you know, lab meetings before we went to a conference where every one who was presenting had to present their talk and get ripped to shreds and put it back together again. And honestly, I actually became known in a lot of my societies for the quality of work that the people I mentored uh, presented. And so that gave me some opportunities in that area. So that was sort of the, the piece on how do you present yourself? How do you claim credit? Really, so you were, shark, you were shark tanking before shark tank was oh, a thing. <laughs> I was shark tanking as a newborn, I think. That's just who I am, fully critical. But then the other really formative experience for me was uh, in 1999, when I was uh, being reviewed for promotion to associate professor, my chair called me into his office because he'd gotten wind from the uh, uh university level committee that it, it probably wasn't going to fly. Um, they didn't think I was independent. 
Um, I didn't have enough first author publications. Um, and so it was sort of like, now I got to figure out what to do. And I said, what do you mean? I'm independent. Here's all the 20 people I'm collaborating with. I am a first author. Only all those first authors are medical students and residents and junior faculty members. And he said, well, does your CV show that? And I said, oh, is my CV supposed to show that? Does, don't people know who I am? And so that really, I, and I will say happy ending to the story. I took my CV. I just put an asterisk next to the trainees that I had uh, that I had published with. I was fortunate to get a mentoring award that week from the Graduate Students Association. So that kind of took care of that independence question. We resubmitted just my CV and it all went through easily. Um, and and then when I got promoted to professor, there were no questions at all, because by that time, I'd really learned how to present a CV. And so I think that really inspired me to say, when people are going through the promotion process, when people are being judged, we sort of go, oh, it's an annoying thing. I have to submit a CV. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Now I've kind of made it my life work in a way to help people present themselves in ways that they don't run into that kind of trouble when they're being reviewed. This is a great way to kick off um, all the the tools you're going to share with us now, because I totally get that. To me, I most I begrudge the fact and I resent the fact on my own behalf when I was going through it, as well as our faculty, like they like that really no time. And now I have to think about marketing myself. I did not go to school for this. My CV, as you said, should speak for itself. Why do I resent the fact that I now have to spend a part the equivalent of a part time job making my CV tell my story. I'm mad about that. And it's just one of those realities. I mean, so lay it on us. What do we need yeah, to do? Sure. Go ahead. So Sue, Sue, and then Harriet. So, uh, so Kim, that is so funny that you say that because Harriet and I were getting ready to speak at, a, at an institution a couple of months ago. And I'm in the cab going from the airport to the, to the site, talking to my daughter, who is in uh, the theater industry, on the phone. And she said, what are you teaching? I said, I'm almost embarrassed to tell you this. It's CVs and, you know, personal statements. I, and she had her own website, her resume built, all these things from the time she was 18 years old. And I said, I'm so embarrassed. Actually, we're teaching this to these very accomplished women. And her response was, but that's not how these women got to where they are. They got to where they are because they had great grades in school. They did well on tests. They functioned well in the clinical or the lab environment. They had letters of recommendation. They never had to market themselves. And that's exactly right. But at a certain point in your career, as you advance beyond the things that we all are expected to do, you know, finish undergrad, finish graduate school or medical school, finish fellowship or residency, all of those things naturally follow each other. But then we start making choices about what you want to do next promotion, administrative leadership roles, awards. Now there's a marketing component that was never there before. And again, it's not about making stuff up. It's about claiming what you've done and having that put out there. So, and we don't know how to do it, but oh. an 18 year old who's in the theater world certainly does. And that's, oh. who can, that's who can humbly tell us it's time for you to do that. What a great story. Harriet. So I will say I am also not a fan of busy work. And so I think I had to kind of do some meta thinking about like, is there value to this process? Um, and I meet with all of our faculty periodically, including to help them put together their promotion package when they're going up for promotion or reappointment, any kind of review. Um, and I sit with them and I take that as an opportunity to ask them, what's your big goal? Why are you here? What are you trying to accomplish? Um, and then once they kind of 
And most of them say, well, I want to be a great clinician. I want to be a great educator. And I'm like, that's not a goal. That's like just everyday work. That's like our expectation of you. And so I kind of pull out of them, like, what is special about you in the operating room? What is special about you in, um, in, in as an educator, as a researcher, as whatever? Um, and then once they have that goal, then they start to see, oh, all these things that I'm doing are really in service of that goal. It helps them think about what are the things I want to keep doing? What are the things I might like to shed because they don't service my goal? And so I really think sort of putting together that personal statement, especially, but also your CV, it helps you review like, what have I done? But also like, what's the story? And Sue, when we're teaching at ELAM ELH, uh, she shows a picture of her CV sort of showing this transition from I'm doing um, cockroach research, I want to say, on allergens. And then I'm changing over to this faculty development stuff. And the the color, she highlights them in color and the color of the presentation changes. And it's very clear that it's a change in her direction of her career. And so I think um, there's sort of a tendency, kind of like with presentations, oh, you'll be fine, just present it. Or, oh, just submit your CV, you've done enough, it'll be great. But rather kind of saying, no, this is an opportunity to really perfect a skill, to think about who you are and where you want to go and and then take credit for what you've done so you get opportunities to do more things. What is so beautiful about this and the gift you've given all of us is, is twofold, is first of all, a reminder to me that everything we do is about communicating and telling a story. When we write a grant, that specific games page is telling a story. You're taking the reviewer by the hand and saying, once upon a time, what if, then a bad guy comes, then a good guy comes, the story works out. And you're leading them down a path where almost you're telling them such a rich story that they, as you turn the corner, they're like, oh, I knew it. I knew you were going to say this. You lead them down a you're because you're engrossing them in a wonderful story. When we write papers and manuscripts, we also want to draw the reader in with a really intriguing story. When we teach, when we're with patients, you want to tell a story. And it's the same thing. So when I get all cranky pants, it's like, Kim, it's the same thing. Why wouldn't getting promoted or interviewing for a new job be about storytelling? So that's the first gift that you've given us. And I can't wait for you to get into the nuts and bolts of it. But the second gift that you two have worked out for us is that you two discovered this and it came upon these tools after the fact. And the way you've worked so hard to present that to prevent a lot of pain and wasted time and anguish and are you kidding me's down the down the line. So certainly I can imagine if someone says, oh, the CV matters, it's much easier to start off with a CV using asterisks and notations and making little storylines versus when your CV is 50 pages long. And now you're like, are you kidding me? Now I got to take a vacation for a week to rewrite my CV if you start earlier. So you've really done such work that is so important and so incredibly valuable. So thanks again for the gift. I love it. Thank you. So sounds like what you'd like us to do is talk a little bit more about specifics. And Harriet's talked quite a bit about CVs. I can't emphasize enough what you've just said about the stories. The CV is kind of the skeleton on which you build stories. And the stories show up in so many different documents. But one of them, for example, in promotion and tenure is your personal statement. Where, you know, when I went up for professor, I had to tell the story of why I went from grinding up cockroaches to teaching uh, women at national meetings. What's the thread there? And there was a thread, very much there was a thread, but I had to tell those stories so people didn't say things like, 
she's terribly unfocused and why is she even, you know, what is she going to be when she grows up? That kind of stuff. I was, I had to tell that story. And I think that's the first message is that people have to from time to time reflect and think about what their story is and be able to put that into words. Harriet, I'm going to tag team to you because it looks like you have a great follow-up to that. I was just going to say, and I think, uh, you know, one of the things that we do a lot of work on is the art of telling stories. Kim, you talked a little bit about what it is to tell a story. Um, And I think one of the things that we've kind of added into this frame of storytelling that is really important for claiming credit for your work is uh, incorporating your strengths into that storytelling, right? So um, if you just tell a story, I accomplished this thing. Um, first of all, that doesn't really give you credit for like what you did to accomplish the thing. Um, and let's say you're applying for a job and you say, I accomplished this thing. Um, and they look at it and they say, well, I don't really need that thing done. And it doesn't give them that ability to kind of think about, well, could she do something else? Mm. Um, so if you incorporate your strengths in and you say, I am a great connector and I uh, had boundary spanning connections on campus and they were looking for someone with these skills and they asked me to do this thing. And here's who I talked to and how I made it happen. And here's the skills I used to make it happen. And then here was the great result. Then they see the great result you got, but they also say, you know, I have this other problem and it seems like someone with boundary spanning connections would be really helpful to solve a different problem. And so it really helps people see um, how you're like, how, what, not just the accomplishment, but how you got to the accomplishment. And so, um, so I think that's one of the big, big things is it's storytelling and you can incorporate your strengths in your CV, but it's far easier to do it on things like personal statements or in negotiation, right? If you're, let's say you're asking for something from your chair, they won't remember your accomplishments. If you come in and say, here's my accomplishments, they won't necessarily art. But if you come in and you say, hey, here was the problem and here are the strengths I applied to that problem and here's the outcome I got. And now I need some resources to kind of expand that outcome. Then they're going to be in a position where they're like, I want to give you some money to do that. And so the other piece around that, that I think we've added to what we've done is not just telling your stories in a way that you weave in your, your strengths, but that what language you choose to do that. And so we've really focused on the literature around language that is agentic versus communal. And the adjectives that suggest that people have skills and abilities, as opposed to the adjectives that are ground grindstone adjectives. And I just read a letter of reference today written by a male chair about a female faculty member. And it was one of those put your head in your hands and say, no, 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 you don't write about how hardworking this person is. And you know, they've accomplished so much. Let's talk about their excellence as an educator, not their hard work at creating curriculum. I mean, it's it's that difference between um, you know, that they have innate skills and abilities that are exceptional. That's what is said about men much more often than women. Whereas people talk about women being hardworking, nose to the grindstone, you know, show up on time. That's like we're all supposed to show up on time. Don't tell me that is an attribute of someone. And when we've presented that, we've also talked about the communal work that women do. And, and women say, but I, I do do communal work. How I got to put that down. It's like, you can talk about your communal work, your work as an educator or, or a caring provider, but you've also got to build in those, those skills, an exceptional, a gifted teacher, an exceptional educator, so that you are balancing that communal work with, these really um, strong skill-based adjectives. Harriet, thoughts on that? 
And I, I just wanted to to sort of talk a little bit about like what it looks like when we ask people to think about their about their strengths and then incorporate them in stories they're telling about themselves. And one thing I will say is universal is when we start these things, people are like, I don't like to talk about myself. I hate claiming credit. I hate doing this stuff. Um, and then when we ask them to to think about their strengths, so they kind of do an identifying their strengths and then incorporate that strength into what they did, I think they get an aha moment of, oh, I made that accomplishment because of things about me that allowed me to do stuff. It helps them kind of dissect. It wasn't just that I was like checking the boxes and grinding the grind and getting the work done. It was that I have unique skills that facilitated me doing it the way I did it and me being successful. And um, and and so I think one of the things is a lot of the people that we have done this with, mostly women, but also men, have sort of said, oh, it's much easier to tell this story when I incorporate my strengths because I understand better why I was the one who did it. You know what? I What this is so amazing because you're, of course, you're making me think. And what I think part of the challenge is with us is that you said something important, Harry. You said, you know, your unique skills. And I have found not only personally, but when I coach many faculty, they will like run over the how things got done because the assumption that, well, duh, isn't it obvious how one makes that happen? And it's just so obvious that everybody must be able to do it because, yeah, I built the lab or I started the practice or I developed this new protocol or I wrote this new great curriculum. And yeah, and, and this and the outcomes of the students, you know, are great and there are this many students. But I'm like, but how did you get there? Well, you know, like anybody does gets there. And that's what I think is to me is like even we have to back up and recognize each of our unique skills because we assume, at least I was told back at Rush in, in Chicago, I said, well, anybody can do this. This is like so easy. It's like falling off of a log. You know, I feel embarrassed to talk about how building this mentoring program, like anybody can do this, right? And then my then Susan Chubinskaya boss said, no, Kim, not everybody can do this. It's easy for you because it's your gift. And I'm like, it is? I thought it was so easy for me that I was embarrassed that it was so easy. So everybody must be like, oh, are you kidding me? Anybody could do that. So the light bulb for me was recognizing because something is innately easy for me or natural may uh, be describing this is a unique skill I have. And so that awareness of like, oh, I didn't know that was a skill and helps me to avoid the assumption. And then that kind of rolls me back into a storytelling because otherwise I was, even when I've been on interviews, I would start telling a story and I would kind of skip over the middle and they'd be like, she didn't really talk about that. I'm like, well, because isn't it obvious? I'm assuming that they know how you get that done because it's so like blah, 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 blah. It's like, I'm not going to tell you I brush my teeth in the morning because blah, blah, blah. We all brush our teeth. What's a, what's a big deal? But that to me was the the awareness and that I've seen with faculty. We 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 yada 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 in Seinfeld language, yada 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 over the like the boring bits. But sometimes that's the that's the juicy stuff, right, Harriet? So I uh, Sue, so your name is Kim. Kim, I completely agree with you. And and one thing I will say is it is true that strengths tend to be invisible to people. So we do a lot of things to help bring out strengths. You know, there's strengths testers, and and you can do a, sort of an online assessment. Um, we have people kind of talk to each other about their strengths. But one of the things that's really interesting is someone writes a story and they incorporate their strengths. And then when they share it with a, whoever, you know, the colleague in the in the session, uh, the colleague will say, well, well, what about this strength and this strength that you showed doing that? And so one of the things that we try to teach is like, 
yeah, you may not be able to pull out what strengths you use because they may be invisible to you. So you should tell the story to a trusted friend who will say, well, what about this? And what about that? And, uh, you know, if I think about sort of some of those stories that I tell, Sue has been invaluable to me in saying, well, Herod, I think this is the strength. I, I said boundary spanning connections because that's a term that Sue used to describe one of my strengths. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly correct. But I didn't come up with that on my own. What was that story? I didn't hear it. Ban- boundary boundary exp- spanning connections. I know oh. everybody. It is actually really That's interesting to me that when I go places, people say to me, um, oh yeah, everybody knows Harriet. Or, oh, Harriet, could you, I need to know someone who does this. Can you connect me? And so Sue's like, yeah, you've got boundary spanning connections. And I'm like, doesn't everybody? See, that's what I mean. That's what you're like, duh. The, the, the things that are easy, we just skim over. We just make assumptions. So that's always, always challenging our assumptions. And, and I, what you said also, Harry, maybe think of even before maybe one help, one thinks of a story, because I've oftentimes had faculty say, I don't know what kind of story to tell. Just showing someone the CV and say, if you didn't know me, like read this CV, what does this tell you about me? And then our friends would be like, this is so boring. This is so dull. I can't believe that you didn't even mention this or it does not convey that or doesn't it describe this? I can't believe you completely forgot about that. And then we go, oh, so that because it's what the forest for the trees kind of a thing that we're just kind of in that kind of we, we don't care about those things. Yeah, Sue. Well, I'm going to say one more thing about this, and then maybe we want to talk about networks a little bit, because that's an important part of our work. So we've talked a lot about your CV and what's out there and how you tell stories and strengths. But the other piece I think we want to make sure we touch on is when you are applying for a job, being nominated for award, how do you kind of do the flip? How do you look at that job posting or that award announcement and say, what strengths do they want to see in this Uh nominee or this faculty candidate? And um, tailoring that nomination letter, which you absolutely should prepare to write for yourself. You should look. So for the Fernesis Award, I believe in not tell. I believe in absolutely telling people they're being nominated for award because who better can look at the qualifications for the award and say, this is when I really I know I did that and tell the stories around it. And so, you know, I, my the team that was going to nominate me showed me the award. I said, here's some things in my life that connect with it. They added to it. The dean added to it. But it's it's how do I say what is this award recognizing? And here's a story that says, yes, I'm the person that does that. Um, so I, I think it's that flip of what strengths are you looking for? Where do you have them? Tell the story. Yeah. And just like a scientist, what is the call for proposals? What is the LOI or the RFP asking yeah. for? And can I then make sure I magnify or amplify what my lab does or what my, you know, what we're doing in my clinic to meet those goals? So, yeah. Frame my submission. So I'm giving them what they asked for. Yes. And, and one of the things we talk about is, um, uh, so you look at your CV and you say, what are the important things I've done? And can I create stories around them? And, and then you sort of collect those stories, including sort of a, some way of marking, here's the strengths that they highlight. And then when you say, okay, I'm going up for promotion, here's the criteria I've got to meet, or I'm, I'm getting a, a nominated for something, or I'm applying for a job. Here's the things they're asking for. Then you kind of go into all of your stories and you say, okay, here's the strengths they want. Here's the stories I'm going to pick out to tell in this situation because they amplify the things that they're looking for. Right. Exactly. So let's talk about networks a little bit because that's also something we talk a lot about and that I just love. Um, 
because, you know, Harriet having boundary spanning networks, I would say I, I have the same. I know a lot of people. And um, I was just in some a, a sponsorship party that Julie Silver, who we know and who's wonderful, really started that process. I was just on one the other night. 12 women presented and every single one of them, I said, oh, I want you to meet so-and-so and I want you to meet so-and-so. And I think that piece around networks is so important. So thinking about your network as that group of folks that you they know you, you know them, and the outcome associated with is that sharing of information, of resources, of connections, but the critical piece of it is around the reciprocity that typically that should occur in networks, typically occur in networks, may not as occur, occur as often for some folks who are not in the majority, so may happen less often in networks where women are vastly outnumbered by men, may not happen as often when folks who are underrepresented in, by race, ethnicity, country of origin, ability status, veteran status, all of those things, people may not experience the reciprocity. So I think the message we talk about networks, how important they are. We also, also talk about people being mindful of extending the reciprocity in the network to all the members, not of of basically taking advantage of some members of the network without re- providing support to them as well. Here, what, how, and and, and I would say, yeah, I would add uh, about networks. You know, I remember when I first started, I kept being told by people, you have to build a network. Um, and it was sort of like, you got to go meet people because they might be able to do things for you. And it was just, I found that abhorrent. Like, I'm like, I, I'm not going to go meet people because they can do things to me for me. It just seems horrible. And yet now, and so I, I was terrible at networking. I would say I, I didn't do it. I just refused. I was like, I'm not doing that thing. And uh, now I have boundary spanning connections as to Sue, partly because what I realized was networking is really about collecting interesting people, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm not, I didn't network with Sue or with you. I didn't say, oh, I'm going to meet Kim Skorupski because in the future, she's going to ask me on her podcast. I'm going to meet with Sue because in the future, we're going to teach at ELAM ELH together. I did it because I was like, these people seem interesting. They're doing interesting work. Let me find out what they're doing. And then as you do that, which might be on personal levels or might be on professional levels, I think both work really well. As you start to recognize that and build that connection, then you start to see the ways that you can sort of connect with each other. Um, and, and I will say, you know, if I think about uh, Sue's point about sponsorship, and I love Julie's uh, Silver's sponsorship parties, they're just amazing. But also this, like, we need to be sponsoring each other. Uh, one way I built my network is because when I'm with those mentees at conferences, I love going and introducing them to people, mm-hmm. right? Like it, and I also find they often know people I don't know who they can introduce me to, right? Like, so that's kind of how you build your network, not by saying, who am I going to target who's going to help me, but just building interesting people who go on in their lives and become a, a useful resource for you. Yeah, being curious. I love that innate curiosity and reframing the I, the mandate to network. You know, one must go to your professional society. Don't sit in your hotel room. Don't just go to the sessions and then run, run away by yourself. Yes, you know. Um, if you're in, more introverted, absolutely go recharge, build in that time to be alone or with your small group of people. But we often say those are the, those are the opportunities to network. So it's not only um, networking for yourself, but another way of reframing that is, okay, one, it could be it's part of your professional obligation. Um, the, the idea that I have to have national, international impact. This helps me, but also helps my division, my department, my institution, and my 
learners and the people that I work with who that so maybe it doesn't feel as icky or, you know, salesperson-y if, if I'm doing this, well, not only for me, but I'm, I'm thinking of other, my colleagues, my junior people, people just behind me, one rung on the ladder and coming up and for my division department and the whole quid pro quo. I'd love to come to your institution and, and talk about something, something. And even I'd love to invite you on back to my place. So let's kind of do that quid pro quo thing. So that's kind of some ways of alleviating that kind of the ickiness of the glad handing and feeling phony versus being curious and thinking of the end of my, like, how can I help you and how can I help other people? And all of that just lifts everyone up. Yeah, Harriet. And so um, I will say the other side of this, I will say, and I think it's particularly important for women, um, Rob Cross, who is a networking guru, he talks about building non-insular networks or boundary spanning networks like Knowing people who do all kinds of different things helps you get through stuff better. But there are also data that having sort of these bonding insular networks with a small group of people is really valuable. It's particularly valuable uh, for women, for uh, people who are underrepresented in in, in an area uh, as a group that you can go back to that's safe, that you can get support from, kind of like going back to your own room, but also going back to a room where people are like, yeah, you can do this and this is great. And so you you kind of want to have like different levels of network um, that you use in or or connect with in different ways. And Sue. Right. And I, I mean, I, I resonate with that. Your description, Kim, of the people who want to go back to the hotel room. Well, for me, when my kids were little, I was the last one there and the first one to go home. However, you don't have to just network at receptions. You go join a subcommittee, join a task force. Then you're actually doing the work you're advancing your career because you're meeting people that that can be helpful to you. You're doing work that builds your national or regional or national reputation. And you're building that network. I mean, Harriet and I and our dear friend, Ann Brown, all met in the GFA through work on subcommittees. And as Harriet and I were starting to talk about networks at ELAM in, in a few weeks ago, Ann walks in the room. She just presented before us. And it was just almost a hysterical moment because we are a network for sure. Ann now is full-time coaching. I refer many people to Ann, which is a great resource for me. But it's so funny to think back on we met through a subcommittee. So it wasn't, none of us are big reception people or go out to dinner or party late in the night at the bars. But but we did work together and working on those committees is, is a networking possibility that does all the things you just described in. And Sue, so I, I want to add one thing to that because one of the things I see sometimes as a little bit of a negative is people wanting to get on committees in a way so they can put it on their CV so they can get promoted um, and then not really engaging. And I think- Really, the way to build a network by being on a committee is by showing up and doing work that's valuable so that people notice that you're a person who they like to have there, uh, because that gives you opportunities to do more things. So it's it's I, I think, Sue, you really describe this really well. I just wanted to kind of amplify it that yeah, it's not great. just about getting on a committee. It's yep. getting on a committee and kind of uh, uh, pulling yourself in through the work that you do, the thoughts that you have, the way that you engage um, and I think that's true of uh, really all networking. Like uh, I could have met Sue and said, oh, I, you, you seem like a nice person and we'll have some chit chats and maybe we'll have dinner once in a while or maybe we'll go swimming together. Um, but uh, but in fact, we met and we were engaged on subcommittees where we had 
work that we were trying to do where we both spoke up and had ideas. And I was like, oh, Sue's got great ideas. I need to talk to her more. Right. So I think that's part of the whole network is it's not just kind of being a person in a space. It's Mm -hmm. being a person in a space who is trying to add usefulness. Yeah. And and I like the, the, the idea also of thinking about built networks. So oh, this professional society has these committees or conference planning committees. That's a built network. And what you just said reminded me of an advisory board meeting we we had with our junior faculty yesterday that they have ideas and we have these two working groups. And we decided that that the new ideas didn't really fit with either of those working groups. So one can create new groups because, again, just as opportunity or need arises, you, anybody listening to this podcast right now may be thinking, well, I'm a member. I'm a member of three or four different societies, or my institution doesn't do those things. Build it, so you can build a new environment. You can build new, or say, "Am I the only one who's interested?" Or I'm curious about this idea or question. If you'd like, you know, email me offline, and let's get together and start talking. And so, you can also create these things anew if you feel like there are no opportunities, nothing that makes you inspires you. So, um, great ideas. I wanted to also ask before we quit. Because you said something early on that I would love to kind of get back to uh, about agentic versus communal. Mm-hmm. Sue, I think you're talking about that. How do we balance the I versus the we statements? Mm-hmm. So I hear this just recently. Someone told me, you know, she had interviewed for a high level position and she was dinged because the committee members felt some felt that she was too much about herself. It was all I, 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 and they got the feeling or the perception was that she was self-engaged or self-involved and was not necessarily a team player, whereas someone else at the same meeting said, and I was criticized for being we, 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 and doesn't she do anything herself? So how do you know how to balance that authentically by saying, no, I did create this but I didn't do it alone. I had to have people, you know, helping me and doing their bits to get, but it was my idea. It was my this, that, the other, but also then being authentic to say, we, you know, how do you, any tips and hints on that, that conundrum of the I versus we, Harriet? Let's, yeah, I know yes. Harriet has thought, so let me let you go first. Okay. I will say, and then, and then, uh, uh, Sue has huge experience in this as well. So I will say one of the things that I say to people is, um, uh, you want to acknowledge the team, right? But you also want to take credit. So you might say, I led a team that did these things. I led an 18-month effort, and this was the result. Um, and there you can also incorporate, what did you do that made the team successful? Because that's a really great skill that people are looking for. Um, the other thing I see a lot is people who participated in something, but were not the leaders of it. Um, and so uh, you could say, I participated in this and my contribution was, or I contributed this to that. So I, I think it's really important because I, again, in this sponsorship vein, nothing is worse than being in a room when someone gets up and says, I did this. And you think, I think I huh? did that work that you're taking credit for, right? <laughs> so you want to give people credit, but at the same time, if all you're saying is we, then people are like, well, I guess everybody else did all the work and you just came along for the ride. So I think the idea of saying I led or this was my contribution. And again, putting in your strengths is a really great way to highlight what it was you did that like, why was your leadership important to the team getting what it was, what was important done? Um, How did you get the best out of the team members? So I think those are things that you can do to acknowledge the team while taking credit for your leadership. 
And Sue, what else do you have to add? Well, to I that? think all I can say is one of the things you do when you're editing the things you've written is do a search for the word I. And if it shows up repeatedly, think how I just rewrite that sentence so that that, that single word on the page doesn't jump out at people because there are different ways of doing exactly what Harry just described, but using a different sentence structure, um, perhaps using the passive voice at times, which we try to avoid, but, you know, thinking about how how to to move, change the language a little, which we try to do anyway to make it more interesting. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Sue, could could you, um, I was hoping that I could get a little bit more, a deeper dive on you. When you, when Harriet was describing your beautiful illustration of the colors and how the the arc of your career shifted from roach crushing to to yeah. faculty. Uh, so how, like, because we all know every faculty member we meet, all 300 some thousand around North America, um, I'm unique, I'm different. We all are. Everyone is like, yeah, but I'm different. And I always remind everybody, yes, we're all uniquely different. There's no one set role. And everybody kind of feels, yeah, but I don't really fit because, and I, then we wait for the, yes, so many layers of like an onion. We're so complex. So how do you, any thoughts on, you know, weaving that story without, as you were describing, I was, remember I was told one time, oh, you're like a mile wide and an inch thick. Which I thought, oh, is that good or is that bad? If it was I just criticized <laughs> what that meant. But how how did you can you kind of walk how do I us tell through? that story? Yeah. I absolutely I can tell that story because it starts with I finished my training. I owed the government time because I had a public health scholarship. They were closing all the public health hospitals. And one of the faculty that I knew who was just starting his research program and was not uh, US boarded needed a non-board seeking fellow. And so I began working in the Allen Division as a non-board seeking fellow. And I had the undivided attention of this fantastic researcher. It's the guy who actually identified the alpha-gal allergy, if you're familiar with that. So this was a long, long time ago. Um, so, uh, and I did three years of work with him. We did epidemiology of asthma. We grabbed up cockroaches. We vacuumed homes at Travis Air Force Base, all kinds of stuff. And I was on a steep curve to be an academic allergist, but I had to pause and say, this is not what I am. I am not an academic allergist. I'm an academic. I Allergic disease is important, but I'm a primary care doctor. And so at that point, I really had to say, I'm going to break with this. I'm going to put more effort into family medicine, and I'm going to build my family medicine network. And I did that by writing to national leaders and saying, here's what I've done in the allergy world. I'd love to translate that to the family medicine world and try to reach out and find opportunities there. And for two years, I didn't get many, but then they started. I was invited to co-author a manuscript. I did that, developed that work along the way. And as I did that work in generalist medicine, did training with medical students, working with residents, and at some point caught the attention of the dean's office around, you know, this is somebody who does a good job at developing people, maybe would have a role in the dean's office. And that that's the short story of how I got there. But the publications, there's cockroach and dust mite and all that stuff for a while. Then there's asthma, allergic diseases to primary care audiences. And then there's career development largely the women audiences and that's the trajectory but every bit of it informed me along the way and I tell this one story where I said when I was in the allergy world I wrote lots of abstracts and they always got accepted and I thought I was just the best abstract writer in the world until I realized that this organization accepted every abstract that was submitted but it built my confidence around writing abstracts and so now we write them all the time and submit them for everything so that was a crucial part of my academic development to have that 
winning experience as a fellow. That is a great story. Thank you for sharing that. I I just wanted to kind of maybe amplify this um, identity, the concept of identity. That's what I hear you describing. And also maybe a second podcast we can, or third podcast in this, in this instance with you two, is talk about at some other time, um, taking these moments throughout our career, throughout the trajectory of our careers, when there are different moments in time and different seasons of career where we it maybe is important to stop and do a gut check of who am I? What is my purpose? What what is my meaning? And is I'm on this road, I'm on this highway. Do I want to be here or do I want to take this exit ramp? And so that curiosity, that reflection, taking the time to think about um, our lives, I think is important. And many of us are just kind of racing that sometimes we end up somewhere and say, how do I get here? So I love how you, it sounds like you on purpose had a moment of like, is this where I want to be? Is this what I want to do? Is this who I am? Does this really feel good to me now? And maybe it did and maybe it changes. So I like that exploration. And that's a beautiful thing about academia, right? That we have that freedom to explore. Harriet. And, and I will say also, I think if you look at those, there's a thread of here are the strengths and skills that kind of allowed me to have new opportunities. Um, and so I think you know, I was in all these committees because uh, I'm bad at saying no, partly, but also because I was seeking them. Um, and it turns out one of my sort of central strengths or skills is I run great meetings. Um, and that turns out to be unusual because like there, it, it requires a lot of preparation and doing a lot of things. And I began to be noticed as someone who ran great meetings. And that actually is what opened a lot of opportunities for me that led me to be doing, you know, I led our task force that decided we'd add, um, if we could get a big donation, which we did, uh, men's lacrosse as a division one sport, right? Like that's got nothing to do with my life in some ways. But on the other hand, I was basically picked because the provost said, I need someone who can herd a bunch of cats, deal with a really tricky issue uh, with lots of stuff. And, you know, Harriet's going to run that committee in a way that it works. And she'll be able to work with all these senior leaders without feeling intimidated. and. That got me to do other things. And so I think I think one of the core messages is if you sort of think about what your strengths and skills are and what they make you good at and you share your stories with those, it'll help you find new avenues when you're like, yeah, I'm not sure this is what I want to be doing, but it can kind of help you figure out like, well, I, there, there's a core of this, which is what I love to do and which is what I'm really good at. How can I translate that to some other area? So I think that's a thread I hear in Sue's story, to be honest, right? Hey, I was good at writing abstracts. And so I took that with me, but I'm sure there were other, you know, I was good at being creative. I was good at, you know, paying attention to the people around me and helping them succeed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been wonderful. I just cannot wait to talk with you both again. We're going to get to this again, but again, Folks, I hope you love listening as much as I did and learning from Dr. Sue Pollard and Harriet Hoff. Thank you both so much. We're going to be back and talk about lots of other things. I just know it. Thank you both so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kim. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time.
The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.